available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. That's the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we make the Podcast of Champions talking all things Pac-12 football. We got a guest for the second week in a row. We're going to talk about the Pac-12 South. And recruiting there with Brandon Huffin. I'll uh, bring him in in one minute, but just want to let everyone know. If you have any questions for the show throughout this offseason, uh, we've had some people sending questions for Brandon. Uh, you can email us, pac12podcast at gmail.com, or you could call or text us at 424-532-0678. We do have a voicemail to play for you guys today. Twitter is at pac12podcast. The website is pac12podcast.com. Reddit is podcast of champions. And as always, If you have an Apple podcasting app on any of your devices, please subscribe to the show. Give us a five-star rating. Say any kind of review you want to say. You want to say something derogatory about me or Dave or Brandon or whatever. We love it. But just put the five stars there, and that's what we're here for. That's what we live for, Dave. We love that stuff. We have a few. Do you want me to read them? Oh, okay, yeah. I'd I'd love to take the opportunity. Brandon would love – I mean – just to take people behind the curtain, Brandon's sitting here just off to the side, and we're going to introduce him in a second. But now we're going to make him listen to our five-star reviews because <laughs> – and I make the, I'm make i saying this for a reason. He still has not left us one. All right. Here we go. This is from Patton51, a five-star review. Uh, listening definitely kills two hours. Uh, sometimes interesting, but always wordy way to kill two hours. Even though the best shows are usually when they have guests that actually know something on, like Brandon Huffman, I still come back for more for some reason. Between David Woods being slightly to the left of Che Guevara and Ryan Abraham wanting <laughs> Wild West anarchy with no government, there is something for every political leaning. Oh, and they talk about the mediocre Pac-12 as well. Uh, then we've got a, a, a <laughs> very good, very good. Um, this oh, is man. one from from Burn M. According to the rules, win or lose, they ask for a five-star rating regardless of the review. Simple enough. This podcast is entertaining even when they talk about Pac-12 football. Of course, it comes from an L.A.-centric worldview where we get fed plenty of UCLA-USC propaganda. Sometimes they even have sound effects subscribed. I I can't think of a more inaccurate review. Are there two people in the world more negative about the programs they cover than you or I? <laughs> I, I we're up there. I would say that. You know, I don't yeah. think it's uh, propaganda. Yeah, and then it uh, looks like somebody left two of the same review, but I'll read the first one. This is from UCLA Basketball School. Um, or actually, no, the, the other one is funnier. Uh, Lambert JH. It's certainly a podcast, though don't expect <laughs> anything more than 60 minutes of what I can best describe as metaphorical fart noises along with one of the hosts having to constantly explain to the other how UCLA's football program should be given a pass for their mediocre state because it's only a basketball school, which is true. <laughs> I love it. Um, That's like the topic of the day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was great. Very cool stuff. Well, you heard him. 
We got Brandon Huffman back again. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Brandon Huffman, H-U-F-F-M-A-N. He's the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports and a friend of the show, even though he hasn't left us a review yet. But, Brandon, thanks again I, for I just did. If you click refresh, my freshly delivered podcast review should be in there unless there's like a – no, there's a period. delay. Yeah, there's Unless a delay for Apple to see if I'm, you know, a bot or something. Yeah, no, or you drew a picture of a penis with letters somehow, like <laughs> something. I don't know. Um, don't don't tempt me. <laughs> well, we can read it next week, so it'll be like having Brandon on three weeks in a row. That'll be great. It'll be amazing. I'm just giving the people what they want, guys. That's awesome. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on, Brandon. And I, I was actually going to ask you about this last week. I forgot about it. You were up in Alaska for the you you got the, these Avery showcases. I, I what was going on up there? That's, you did like a camp and stuff up in Alaska. That seemed pretty cool. Yeah. So a good friend of mine, former Pac-12 quarterback, in fact, actually was the Pac-10 when he played Taylor Barton. Uh, shortly after Avery passed away, he did one of the first events in the football space. He did about three different camps on the West Coast, including one in Southern California one in Northern California and then one in Washington called the Avery Showcases. And over the last few years, it's just it's grown in where its location has been. So we figured, hey, you know, let's try and do something in a place that nobody ever goes to. So we decided to go to Alaska in the middle of December. And, <laughs> you know, when the day starts at like, I mean, I don't know if either of you guys have ever been to Alaska, but I was not prepared for 10.30 a.m. for it still to be dark out. And then at 3 p.m. for it to start getting dark. <laughs> Nor was I expecting to be walking around in a normal circumstances in the teens, but there I was. And it actually turned out to be a pretty great, great camp. Got to see some guys uh, that, you know, we just didn't know a whole lot about. And there was one kid who actually committed to Montana state today, had D two and D three offers, ended up getting an FCS offer after it. Another kid got his first FBS offer last week. He was the camp MVP. So, you know, good opportunity to go to Alaska, even got to go dog sledding, so, you know, I can cross that off the bucket list. I never actually wrote it down on, but it was a cool trip. My son got to go with me, Cade, and he was a part of the of the camp. And it was just a, it was a good experience and it was cold and I was freezing in places I didn't think were allowed to chill. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. I don't know. Have you been, Dave? I've never been to Alaska. I'd love to, I'd love to go. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, maybe not in the winter. Maybe no. we could uh, rethink well, that one, Huff. I That's what know. everybody kept saying. You got to come back in July and do another <laughs> camp here when it's sunny. I'm like, well, is that when it's sunny, like 21 hours a day? They're like, it's actually 22 hours a day. Like, I am there. Wow. Nice. Well, I just want to let people know about that. So check it out. You can check it on Brandon's uh, Twitter feed. But last week, we went over the Pac-12 North and the recruiting classes. So we're going to have to break down the South now since we're this LA-centric uh, podcast. We did the North first. We didn't, you didn't talk about USC and UCLA. Um, Dave, you want me to introduce the team and you're going to give a few facts and then we'll get Brandon's take. Is that what we did last week? Uh, well, you flubbed the first one, then I did it and then you sort of did it. And so we, you know, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, we I'll, don't plan these things. I'll introduce the team and you give us like some of the vital stats about where they're ranked. Let me do that. Stuff. That sounds, that sounds amazing. That okay. sounds beautiful. I love it. So we're going to go down, um, the, by the, the rankings for the, as far as the team rankings go from 24 seven sports. Uh, for the Pac-12, the number two team ranked in the Pac-12 is USC Trojans. All right, USC, the number eight 
ranked class in the country. Uh, big bounce back from last year when they were 64th. Um, so obviously showing Clay Helton um, right in the ship and getting things uh, ready for a big run here coming soon. Uh, number two in the Pac-12. So, you know, very close to number one. That's that's pretty great. Um, and uh, average rating of these recruits, uh, 0.9137. So we're talking like four-star average. Pretty impressive. Clay Helton. He's got something building there. Uh, And 19 uh, signed letters of intent, uh, one enrollee already, and one remaining hard commit. Brandon, give us your insights about this robust class for Clay Helton and how he is riding the ship uh, over in uh, Trojan land. (laughs) Extension is what you're asking for, right, Dave? Yes, exactly. I, I, I think, obviously, this class really begins and ends with Corey Foreman. And I think that that is what... USC fans expect. I think it's really what college football fans expect for USC to be able to keep the top player in the Southland in the Southland. And I think you look back at a year ago when, you know, Bryce Young ultimately ended up the number one player in the country per 24 seven sports, a former USC commit. He flips to Alabama, Justin Flo in normal years, an elite inside linebacker likely stays in Southern California. You know, even the year before that, Kayvon Thibodeau was a top player in Southern California and whether USC really recruited him all that hard is neither here nor there, but he opted out of USC. So for them to be able to rally this year and to get Corey Foreman when, you know, he kind of epitomized what their plight was a year ago. I think he committed to Clemson last January. And that was kind of the, the perfect exclamation point on what was a rough start to the 2019 season and recruiting. And then obviously the 2020 class when they lost so many key players and then it looked like they were already starting in a hole in 2021 with Foreman's commitment to LSU or to, to Clemson at the time. And then Ray John Davis, another major target of theirs was committed to LSU. So they rallied for Foreman. They're still in the mix for Ray John Davis, who will decide here shortly. Uh, and then you look at what they did at the quarterback position, you know, even though they lost Jake Garcia, they probably got a better quarterback in Jackson Dart to commit out of Utah, who really he had probably the best season of anybody playing football in the western part of the United States and went from, I think, having a Weber State offer before the season started to having a number of Pac-12 offers and ultimately picking USC on signing day, helping Corner Canyon to a state championship. Uh, He comes from the same program that Zach Wilson of BYU fame played at in high school. So you get Jackson Dart as your second quarterback when you already got Miller Moss. They were able to flip Chiron Ware Hudson from Oregon, a longtime Oregon commit who had committed there after his brother Keon had started or had, had signed there the year before. They were able to go outside of California as well. So it wasn't just how well they did in the state, but to go out to Utah to get Jackson Dark, to go to Washington and get a Julian Simon, to go out to Florida to get a guy like Michael Trigg, a top five tight end nationally, but then really <clears throat> kind of revamp their efforts in the Southland. I think if you look at their recruiting list, you see a number of guys that either have DB or that are safeties or corners or even have athlete next to their name. Those are guys that are coming in to play DB. And that was the Dante Williams effect. Clearly Dante Williams had an impact in this recruiting class with the amount of DBs that USC was able to sign in this class. So I like how they kind of spread the country, but really rejuvenated their own efforts in Southern California. Yeah, the I was going to mention the the Dante Williams impact. You know, when they lost T. Martin, they didn't really have that uh, ace recruiter on staff. It seems like Dante Williams is that, and some of the guys from Texas too. I think have uh, have done a good job. But is that a name you hear out on the trail a lot? Constantly, and I think it's not just a name you hear on the trail in twenty twenty one class, but 
USC is kind of considered the prohibitive favorite to lie on the number one DB in the country in 2022. Damani Jackson out of USC. And again, Dante Williams has been a key part of his recruitment. So it's clear that the move to hire Dante Williams a year ago paid off. And then the promotion he received a couple of weeks ago, I think he's at what the associate head coach now uh, at USC. So clearly they understand that he brings a tremendous amount of value as a recruiter. And it's been evident so far in the 12 months that he's been on campus. It is my opinion, Brandon, that Miller Moss's face looks very similar to Ricky Towns' face. Now, I would like you to compare these two as players. Um, is there any comparison to be drawn there? Because I will say the facial resemblance is significant. <sighs> I could see that. I, I think that the difference is Ricky Town kind of peaked early on in his career. And over the last couple of years of his high school career, you start to see his descension and Josh Rosen's ascension. Whereas I think Miller Moss obviously didn't get an opportunity to show what he could do as a senior, but really came on towards the end of his junior year. I think the majority of his recruitment started happening between his sophomore and junior year. And I think he got better as high school football went on, whereas I think Ricky Town regressed a lot over the last couple of years. And so I think that the one thing they do have in common is they both are from that Ventura County, San Fernando Valley area and the faces. I can, I can see the resemblances that you see there, Dave. <laughs> Interesting. All right, uh, let's move on. Um, so this is the number four program. When you talk about relentless recruiters, I mean, Chip <laughs> Kelly's name has to be up there, but our number four team is UCLA Bruins. <laughs> Yes, UCLA um, with, I believe, what would have been Jim Mora's worst class at UCLA, uh, number 28 <laughs> nationally, uh, fourth in the Pac-12, um, an average rating of .8741, which is what, like a high three-star? Is that sort of the average there? Sounds about right. I don't know your point, your decimals, whatever system this is. Um, but UCLA, 14 signed letters, three enrollees already, one hard commit left over. Uh, Brandon, what were your uh, takeaways from this class, and uh, why do you think, um, I, I, I don't know, represented a bit of an uptick from uh, previous years? Well, you know, when you think of the great closers in college football, Nick Saban, <laughs> Dabo Swinney, Urban Meyer, and Chip Kelly are all the names that are kind of synonymous with each other. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, it was Look, I can accept it from Ryan. I'm not going to accept <laughs> it from you, Brandon. I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. Let, him, it was, do, it, let him have fun. Hey. <laughs> Just remember, though, there was a time when Mr. Chip, was it, what's his first name? Theodore Kelly? Um, <laughs> whatever his first real name is. When Chip Charles, Kelly did close. Charles. 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 Charles Chip Kelly one time closed in consecutive years with the number one player in California when he signed DeAnthony Thomas and Eric Armstead in back-to-back -back classes. So believe it or not, there was a time where Chip Kelly was kind of like Nick Saban and Urban Meyer and Dallas Swinney playing for Natties closing with the elite players but, but that, that was, was back before ago. the body snatching that was 10 years ago that was before a niner chip and eagle chip and espn chip the present chip had a much better close this year than i think ucla fans were used to seeing under his watch it was something that they got used to under jim mora but really i, I don't know if it was the the timing of the improved play over the course of the season, interestingly enough, between the USC and Stanford meltdowns is when they produced the majority of their commitments in this class. But at one point, this class looked like it was going to be completely barren of defensive linemen, save Tyler Keene out of New Mexico. 
And then over the course of about a seven-day span, they flipped the DN from, uh, from Vanderbilt and A.J. Campbell. They fit, flipped Christian Burkhalter from Oregon to UCLA. They were able to flip Quinton Somerville from Michigan to UCLA. And then they also were able to flip Hayden Nelson from Syracuse to UCLA. So clearly they had a need on the defensive line. They addressed that need. They were able to get a quarterback early on in Kajaya Holloway. They made a run at Jackson Dart, didn't get him, but then got a boost when Ethan Garbers put his name in the portal and then pretty quickly chose UCLA after that. They did a really good job at the receiver position. Uh, most notably, Isaiah Newcomb out of Arizona, whose dad Bobby played at Nebraska in the 90s, was a quarterback there. And then they were able to get a really good offensive line group, including the number one interior lineman in the state, Noah Pualii, and the number one tackle in the state, and Thomas Cole. So Justin Fry did a really good job closing, I think, Johnny Nansen. Uh, and, you know, the, the defensive efforts did a really good job of closing on the defensive line to give UCLA a class that's a little bit more what UCLA fans had expected Chip Kelly to be able to produce, but he wasn't necessarily putting out in those first two years. Brandon, we saw um, UCLA just look like a different team. I mean, they just looked like they kind of got like the defense was just firing around and being really aggressive. We saw like a, a really competent run game. It just seemed like it worked. It like it took a while, but things like this looked like a real team again. I know it's sort of later in the process, but did that help for this recruiting class? Or is that probably going to be if they they look this competent on the field, it's going to help more, you know, for the class of 2022? I think it'll help with the 2022 efforts, provided they they you know use that recruiting cycle with the same veracity that they close the 2021 cycle with. You know, one of the things that UCLA has always tried to you know really do well as in their evaluations and try to get guys that maybe weren't as necessarily popular names in the recruiting jargon, but have guys with a lot of upside. Well, now you're running into a problem where so many of these guys haven't played a season. They didn't play their junior year. They you know, are in a state that there wasn't any football. So their evaluations are going to either have to be really quickly picked up when, if there is a season in the spring in California or wherever states that they're recruiting, or they're going to have to really trust their instincts to offer guys based on their sophomore year. So I think because there was a lack of a season, it, it kind of forced UCLA to, you know, come on, come into the 21st century with their recruiting approach and, not just be the ones that wait for the new film to come, but to start trusting your judgment and to trust your evaluations from previous and early on when you maybe have a more limited body of work. And I think that with the 2022 class, if there isn't a season, they're going to have to pick things up and you know do it how they did in 2021. But if the one thing you look at with those kids that played in 2021, that each of those defense alignment that they flipped all came from states where they did play high school football. So even though those guys were all power five commitments, they all did have fresh senior film that allowed UCLA the urgency and the newest context to evaluate and offer those guys. Whether they can do that in 2022, if there is no season, remains to be seen. So uh, one of the things that became apparent the last couple of games of UCLA seasons was even with the improvement on defense and clearly a, a better conceived scheme, uh, there wasn't much in terms of a base pass rush. They usually had to bring numbers to generate any kind of pressure among these uh, defensive end types um, or defensive lineman types, uh, depending on which way you go on a couple of these guys. Um, is there anybody that you can foresee making an instant impact in terms of providing a little bit more base pass rush? I kind of think that Christian Burkhalter, the kid that they actually had a commitment from, who was committed to Oregon, sorry, during the summer, uh, a big six foot five, 230 pound kid out of Alabama. He played this fall in Alabama, and you could really see a jump in his film from his junior year to his senior year. Physically, I think he's ready to come in and be able to play 
early on, being that he's six foot five, 230, 235 pounds. So it's not like he's a skin and bones type guy that is going to need a couple of years in the weight room. He's going to need some time in the, in the nutrition program. He's probably got the physical makeup to be able to play early. Um, at the same time, I think if you look at, you know, Quentin Somerville, who was the kid that they flipped from Michigan, the fact that he's already on campus, he's probably going to end up being a defensive tackle when it's all said and done. We have him listed as a strong side defensive end, he's a four-star defensive end. Uh, but I think a guy that will probably be able to play in that role, maybe that Oso Digazua did, uh, maybe not fill it immediately, but be able to get some reps there in at that position. And the fact that he's on campus, getting himself ready to play. If they do have spring football, he'll have the opportunity to play in the spring. He probably has the best opportunity to come in and play just by being on campus already this spring. All right, let's uh, move on. And just to be clear, uh, the number one and number two teams, Oregon and USC, are pretty far ahead as far as the ranking goes to the rest. Three, four, five, and six are within a few points of each other. So Cal was three. We talked about them last week. UCLA really is a point and a half behind Cal, so right up there at the top three. And then uh, our number five team was actually just a couple points behind uh, UCLA as well, and that is Utah Utes. Utah has the 31-ranked uh, class nationally, um, fifth in the Pac-12, but as uh, Ryan just said, um, very close to top three, um, actually just a few points behind Cal. Um, so this, uh, Utah class, I think represents a pretty, uh, again, I mean, I think Utah's getting a little bit used to it now, but consistently being right around the top 30 is, uh, very good for that program. Uh, they had 16 signed letters of intent, uh, one hard commit. They got four transfers, um, including TJ Pledger, which is a pretty cool pickup for them. Uh, Brandon, give us your thoughts on the Utah class. Well, first of all, I love the fact that this class, again, was able to pluck a top target out of Southern California and bring him into Utah. Year after they did that with Clark Phillips and were able to flip him, he was committed to Ohio State and they flipped him at the 11th hour and then he played a lot as a freshman. They were able to do that this year with Ethan Calvert. And what was fascinating about Ethan Calvert is he appeared to be all but a lock to go to USC. He was one of their top targets at the inside linebacker spot. For quite some time, you know, he had an interesting journey in that his oldest brother, Bo, who plays at UCLA, was committed to USC for quite some time before he ultimately signed with UCLA. His other brother, Joshua, is at Washington right now. But this looked like the one that might end up at USC with all of them kind of setting out to go on their own separate direction. He decides to go to his father's alma mater. And it was a huge pickup for Utah because all signs were pointing to him being at USC. I think the majority of the crystal balls were on the Trojans at that point. And then after he took kind of a quiet trip out to Utah, he ultimately picked the, the Utes and gave them a top five linebacker, an All-American. And more importantly, it showed that Utah's efforts in California, again, they got Jalen Johnson four or five years ago, Clark Phillips, Ethan Calvert. They've been able to bring in top 50 top 60 players from California pretty consistently the last few years. And I think that's something that Kyle Whittingham surely wants to keep doing at Utah. He's going to, you know, first and foremost, they're going to try to continue to win their state, even though Oregon has signed the number one player in the state of Utah three of the last four years. Uh, while they lost a few guys out of the state this year, again, losing Kingsley Sulamataia to Oregon, they were able to get from the in-state, Isaac Baja, a big-time six foot six, six seven, two hundred thirty pounder who could play tight end, he could play defensive end. Uh, they were able to get 
another kid, Ajuko, who they had already had at one point committed to Vita Fotu. So they were able to still get kids from California, but they went out to Hawaii. They went out to California. They went up to Washington. They went into Arizona and got a couple kids. And so they really kind of spread their reach where it's not just Utah, California, and then the Florida kids. Interestingly enough, as much success as they've had in Florida in the last few years, they only signed one player out of Florida in this class. But I like what they did at this class, especially on the defensive side of the ball with Ethan Calvert and Mason Tufunga, both a pair of four stars. Uh, the one player that I really like in this class that I think tends to be overlooked at times is Jonah Ellis, and partly because he's in Idaho. He's the number one player in Idaho, but this kid's got NFL bloodlines. His father, Luther Ellis, was an All-American at Utah, was a first-round draft pick, one of the greats that have ever played at Utah, and he's a, a outside linebackers coach in Idaho. So because of that, Jonah's playing in Moscow, Idaho, rather than playing at one of the more high-profile schools his older brothers did when Luther was coaching with the Broncos. They played at Valor Christian, which is the powerhouse in Colorado. So he was a little bit off the grid, but he was clearly the best player in the state of Idaho. And that's the kind of player that Utah gets that maybe people don't talk about. And then three years later, four years later, you end up seeing the kids got 400 tackles and has been a real key of that Utah defense. Yeah. Um, so obviously the tragedy uh, with Todd Jordan, I mean, he just looked like such a great prospect and was electric out there. I mean, his emergence, I think a couple running backs end up transferring out of the program as well. Uh, you mentioned the one player signed from Florida was Ricky Parks from Tampa. He's a, a three-star running back, but they also brought in a couple transfers. J um, Dave mentioned uh, TJ Pledger, Southern California kid. And then uh, from he's co coming from Oklahoma and then Chris Curry from uh, LSU. Um, did you hear anything about what they wanted to do addressing the running backs? Because even before, you know, the unfortunate passing of Ty Jordan, they were going to have to replace guys because they were getting guys transferring out of the program because I think because he was so good. Yeah, and that's certainly the case. You know, he was the heir apparent to Zach Moss, and it was clear that that was going to be his position for the next couple of years uh, to the point where Jordan Wilmore, who had been kind of the more highly touted running back in that 2019 class, ultimately put his name in the portal. And I think he just announced this week he's going to Fresno State. Uh, but, you know, it's not just a loss from a, you know, a personnel standpoint and from a talent standpoint. Obviously, that's something that Utah is going to have to emotionally recover from. And it just feels like that program has dealt with that, you know, unluckiness before and just the unfortunate. I remember, I think it was 2013, they had a member of their team who was a, a freshman who was also from Texas, was killed in a car accident heading back from Utah to Texas in the offseason. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, it really hit the program hard. So sadly, and unfortunately, Kyle Whittingham has been through this before and he's had to prepare for it. But you know, it's like it's hard to bring football into the mix, but it does leave a, a real gaping hole in the backfield. And so I think that's why even with his departure, uh, with Jordan Wilmore's departure, they were planning to bring in some more depth uh, behind Tiger. And now you know, with Chris Curry, obviously with TJ Pledger coming in with Ricky Parks, they're, they're going to have those guys have the opportunity to, to fill that hole on the field. But that, that's just something that. You know, you could really see, too, the, the, the impact that Ty Jordan had on that program and on that coaching staff in the way they rallied around his family with, with the services. And just, you know, again, Kyle Whittingham is a guy that I think has really become a father figure to so many of those players. And, you know, not something that I think they ever had even imagined having to deal with in the offseason is trying to fill that hole. Um, another area that I think offensively um, – there was some real concern about this year was quarterback. Um, Cameron rising went down early. Um, and then Jake Bentley came in and I would describe him as, um, not good. 
Not good. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to be charitable and I was going to go up and down, um, but it was mostly down. Um, and they'd gotten such good play from Tyler Huntley the last couple of years. Looking at this group that's coming in, because you've got Peter Costelli, who's the dual threat out of Mission Viejo, uh, who's a four-star in the composite. You've got Charlie Brewer, who's a transfer from Baylor. You've got Jaquindon Jackson, who's a transfer from, I believe, Texas. Um, do you think this is going to be, I mean, and this is a, maybe a little bit out of your uh, pure, you know, pure recruiting purview, but um, based on what you hear and everything, do you think this is going to be an open competition with Rising? Um, do you think Rising has pole position? And based on how many quarterbacks they're taking, it doesn't seem like Utah's super confident in what they have, right? I, I got to think that this is Charlie Baylor, or Charlie Baylor, Charlie Brewer's job to lose. You know, three-year starter at Baylor helped them as a junior. They were a you know a game away from potentially playing to going to the playoffs. You know, they they were undefeated until they lost to Oklahoma in consecutive weeks, and ultimately ended up in the Sugar Bowl. But he was an all Big 12 guy. I think he ended up being like second or third on Baylor's passing list. And Baylor went from a pretty offensive program when Art Browse was there uh, to with Dave Aranda being a team that was going to be more built around defense. And obviously Charlie Brewer saw this year that, hey, you know what? It might be better to, better off taking an opportunity to use this fifth year and go to Utah where there was that quarterback instability. And Utah is a program that has really – done well in past years when they've had a transfer come in and maybe fill the role. Uh, remember a few years ago when Travis Wilson was hurt. Um, oh, I can't remember the kid's first name. Something Thompson came in and he beat UCLA on the road. And so in, in situations where there's not a stable starter, this is the kind of guy that really bolsters. I'm not saying he's going to have the Gardner Minshew type of effect, but it wouldn't surprise me if, Charlie Brewer is just kind of that missing piece because we saw how much better Utah was playing down the stretch those last couple of games. And maybe he's that piece that they now have as a fifth year senior to get Utah back to a team that's a force national. All right, let's move on to the next team. Uh, this is our number seven team. And they're sort of a, a little bit below the, the tier of uh, we saw Cal, UCLA, Utah, Washington, but they're above the teams uh, below them, so they're kind of in their own place, but it's a smaller class. But our number seven team is Arizona State Sun Devils. <laughs> yeah, so ASU signed the uh, number 47 class in the country, um, which, again, it's very small. It's only 11 signees right now and three hard commits. Uh, it's the seventh best class in the Pac-12. Um, from an average rating standpoint, it's a little bit lower than last year. It's a .8694 after being .8802 last season. Um, but this is three, four stars signed one, uh, still a commit who has not yet signed, uh, Brandon, uh, give us your thoughts on this class, including the numbers. Is this, um, was this a necessarily small class because of scholarships available or are they still looking to sign some guys? Oh, I think they're looking to sign some guys. And at one point, Arizona state had like four guys that openly said that they were dropped by Arizona state. So it must've been a number standpoint that they were doing better with other players that are a little bit more higher profile, higher rated guys that they needed to have the space for. So only signing 11 and obviously the, the big one that they didn't sign was Isaiah Johnson, who was their highest rated player in this class, a four star who was originally from the East coast, moved to California to play his senior year, which they haven't been able to do. He did not sign in December. He's expected to sign up in February. Uh, so all signs are still pointing there, but 
If you look at what they've done already in the transfer portal, they were able to get four players, a tight end from Jaden Conyers out of Oklahoma, who was an Army All-American in 2020. Uh, Tristan Miller, a four-star offensive lineman out of North Carolina. Trevez Moore, who was a defensive end out of LSU. So they definitely filled some needs with instant impact transfer types. Uh, they've got some really good players in this class, but the real crown jewel of their class is the one whose letter of intent they're hoping to get in February in Isaiah Johnson. I like what they did. You know, first and foremost, I like what they did just at the, in the secondary, even though Isaiah Johnson hasn't signed just yet to get his commitment. He had offers from all around the country and committed to Arizona State. Tommy Hill out of Florida is a guy that I think is going to be a really good safety in college. I like Robert Reagan, RJ Reagan, as he's known, out of Orange Lutheran in Southern California. So they did a good job in the secondary. They've got a good young nucleus of talent in that secondary. They did do a good job on the offensive line, too, getting an offensive lineman out of Texas and Edward Dotson Oyatade, who's a top five center nationally. They got a couple of tackles from the West, Austin Berry and Isaiah Glass, Isaiah Glass being from the state of Arizona. And then they did a good job at the receiver position in that in the fact that they got a guy who is an impact player. There was only one receiver that they signed, but a guy that I expect to be able to come in and compete in a pretty talented receiver room in Junior Alexander, who had, I think, 1,800 yards receiving last year, 25 touchdowns uh, as the main target for Sam Heward, who was the number one pro-style quarterback in the country going to Washington, and just had a huge junior season. And I think his best football is played ahead of him. So to go into the state of Washington and to get a guy who had offers from both the in-state schools, not many Pac-12 schools outside of Stanford have been able to do that in the last few years. And Arizona State goes in to the Seattle area and gets a commitment from Junior Alexander who signs. And I expect him to be a, a part of that offense pretty quickly. One of the things that impressed me, I mean, we, we panned the hire of Herm Edwards and uh, definitely proved me wrong. Um, but I, the way he kind of built that coaching staff and some of the players or some of the coaches he brought in uh, with these Southern California ties, like if it's Antonio Pierce or Chris Hawkins or whatever, um, it seems like those guys paid a lot of dividends on the recruiting trail. Have, are those names you've heard a lot out there oh. and how, you know, how impactful has that been, the, the kind of hires he's made? Yeah, I mean, that's been huge, whether it's going back to the Antonio Pierce hire, which may prove to be probably the most significant hire he ever made at Arizona State, and just the immediate dividends that it paid to get a, a guy like a Merlin Robertson out of Sarah, to get you know players, some of the players he got from Long Beach Poly, and then just the, the impact and, and the, the ties and connections that Antonio Pierce has in Southern California, being a Southland native himself, being a part of the high school football scene as the head coach at Long Beach Poly. So that was big. So what does he do when he loses a couple of guys uh, to other jobs? When Tony White leaves, when uh, Tony White left to go be the defense coordinator at Syracuse, they lost uh, Danny Gonzalez to be the head coach at University of New Mexico. So what does he go and do? Well, he goes and hires one of the young upcoming defensive back coaches in the Southland who was just playing high school or college football three years ago in Chris Hawkins and a guy that's got, again, major ties in the Southland. His father, Armand, runs one of the most successful seven-on-seven programs in the country in ground zero. But Chris was a guy that you could see there was a coach in the making when he was in high school. And then you probably saw him you know, for five years, Ryan, seeing that very thing. So it was a natural progression for him. And he was able to make it work on the recruiting trail despite his youth. And then they hired Prentice Gill who had been a grad assistant at USC, then an analyst at Oregon. He paid immediate dividends when he was able to flip Johnny Wilson a year ago to get to go to Arizona State. And then this year, they promote Adam Brenneman, who was another younger kid who we just covered a few years ago now. So I think that one of the things Herm Edwards is understanding is that 
recruiting is kind of a youthful game and you've got to have young, energetic, aggressive recruiters. And if they can do that well while being stuck in an office when they can't go on the road because of the NCAA dead period, you can imagine how much more value they're going to bring when they are free and they are allowed to go on the road and host visitors on campus. I think Herm Edwards' plan, which, like you said, was panned at the time, has turned out to be kind of a model that you may see more programs kind of you know, follow that route in building their own successful recruiting program and their own successful college football program. So one of, um, I know, longstanding concern, uh, not to rain on the parade, but one of the longstanding concerns for both Arizona schools is um, locking down the home state. And I'm looking at Arizona's, uh, the state's recruits this past cycle. So first, overall, Arizona is becoming like a pretty, pretty good state, I would say, for talent. And Arizona State, neither Arizona school, I'm not going to just paint ASU here, but uh, they missed out on the top 14 recruits in the state, according to the composite. Uh, And the only uh, Arizona-based recruit that ASU signed, it looks like, is Isaiah Glass, the offensive tackle. How much of a real concern is this, especially with Arizona becoming, I think, um, a, a pretty good state for talent? I feel like this has been something that's been an issue really since towards the end of Dennis Erickson's time at Arizona State. I think you look at Todd Graham and, you know, he had some years where it looked like momentum was finally shifting back towards Arizona State and they would get a Nikhil Harry and a Chase Lucas, but then they would lose Byron Murphy and he'd go to another Pac-12 school. So I think that, you know, Arizona State has been, I don't want to say they've been bleeding because I think you know Arizona is just as guilty. They've had a really hard time keeping yeah. kids in Tucson, especially guys that are Arizona legacies. But I think Arizona State, given their proximity to so much of this talent, it's it's bad enough to lose them. It's even worse when you're losing them to other Pac-12 schools. And I think you know it's not just the Pac-12 they're losing them to. They're losing them to the Big 12 and maybe guys that they're not necessarily going after very hard. But when you have the SC or the Pac-12 and the Big 12 championship game featuring four quarterbacks from the state of Arizona and neither of those four guys are playing for Arizona or Arizona State, that leads to a little bit of a problem. And if you look at look at Oregon's class in the 2021 cycle, they had four players out of the state of Arizona that they ended up signing and three of them were the top five players in the state. The number one player in Ty Thompson, the number two player in Bram Walden, and the number five player in Jonah Miller. And, you know, Scottsdale Saguaro has been a, a power in the state of Arizona. And they've had so many players that they produced in these last few years that just didn't end up at Arizona State, whether it was Keely Ringo at Georgia, Denzel Burke at Ohio State. Uh, Bram Walden going to Oregon, Quentin Somerville uh, going to UCLA, Byron Murphy going to Washington, Christian Kirk going to Texas A&M. I mean, if they could just get Saguaro kids to stay home, yeah. things would be huge for that program. And, and that's been kind of an issue. But they kind of made the the, the choice that if we're not going to get those Arizona kids, we're just going to continue to hit California kids really, really hard. Yeah, just so everyone knows, just uh, before we move on to the next program, I'm ta- it, it was it's seven four star guys uh, in the composite this cycle um, out of Arizona. Um, so you know that seems, I don't know, that seems pretty good for Arizona, right? State wise, does it seem like it's on the growth track? Very much so, and I think yeah. it's it's continuing to get better. And I was actually having this conversation with a high school coach in the state of Oregon yesterday that Arizona. Is it's got good top end talent, but even the depth is starting to get greater than it's ever been because I think so many people are moving to Arizona. And I think you're going to continue to see the state of Arizona producing elite players and 
farming them out to a lot of programs. I think there's four power five conferences that had a starting quarterback from the state of Arizona this last year. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to our next team. This is uh, the number eight squad uh, in the rankings in the Pac-12. Colorado Buffalo. All right, Carl Durrell's first class at Colorado, uh, ranked 54th nationally, which is a pretty big drop-off from last year. Uh, eighth in the Pac-12, um, average rating 0.8435. Uh, numbers are a little bit down from last year, so maybe that explains it a little bit. 17 uh, signees, three hard commits, a couple of transfers right now. Um, Brandon, what's your take on this class and the job Carl Durrell did in year one? I think if there was any coach that could lament how the entire recruiting cycle screwed him over, it would be Carl Durrell. I think, you know, only Nick Rolovich could even offer a similar complaint because he was hired in mid-January, but Durrell was hired after the February signing period. So not only did he not get to have any makings on his 2020 class, but then he gets hired when the NCAA decides they're going to do a dead period the entire month of February. So I think there was a 12 to 13 day total amount of days that Carl Durrell was the head coach of Colorado, where they were even allowed to have recruits on campus. And he didn't get to have a junior day. They didn't get to have extensive visits in the spring. And so I think if you look at their class, considering all the obstacles that Colorado had to overcome with the new coach, with the late departure of Mel Tucker, with the later hiring of Carl Durrell, and then with the inability to get recruits on campus, for them to still finish in the top eight, nine of the Pac-12 is pretty impressive. Um, you know, this is a program that has been a little bit in flux with the firing of Mike McIntyre three years ago, the hiring of Mel Tucker, and then ultimately him spurning the program after a year to leave, and then the hiring late of Carl Durrell, then the pandemic. I think that they have to be pretty pleased with what they were able to pull in. And I think part of that's because they did a good job in their evaluation. And I look at some of the guys that they have in this class and these are players that I think really highly of. Eric Olson, who picked Colorado as a tight end, picked Colorado over Stanford, Notre Dame, UCLA, and I think Washington, and decided to stay home. I think you look at Drew Carter, who is a kid that if he ever put all of his time and energy into just being a football player, would have probably had offers from all over the country. But he's an elite basketball player. He's going to play basketball for the Buffs as well. But a dual threat quarterback that is 6'3", 195 pounder, who I think is a fantastic athlete and a guy that I think Colorado being the last Pac-12 school to get a quarterback commitment, that was a hell of a pickup for them. They were able to get some players from in-state. Again, that's been something that's been an issue, not just in Arizona, but in Colorado. And they were able to get a couple of their players from the state, like Chase Penry out of uh, Cherry Creek, which has been one of the prominent, it's probably the best public school in, in, from a football standpoint in the state of Colorado, Ty Robinson out of Eagle Crest. So they went and they got some really good players out of their in-state programs. And they went out into California to get a guy like Kalen Moore out of Oaks Christian. And they went out into Nevada, got Zephaniah Maia out of Liberty, who was a key part of them stunning Bishop Gorman and ending their nine-year run as a state champion, and he went out into Arizona and got Zion Madale from Chandler, which has been the prominent program in the state of Arizona. So I think if you look at what Carl Durrell has done, it's he did a really good job of identifying players that come from winning high school programs that are part of a culture of winning when they were in high school with the hope that that will continue to translate when they were there. So, you know, we look at Carl Durrell did so much under the bubble at UCLA when he was going up against the juggernaut that Pete Carroll had going 
at USC. And if you look at his last couple of classes at UCLA, there was a definite marked improvement in evaluations and their recruiting efforts compared to early on. And I think Colorado fans are now seeing they're getting the later part of Carl Durrell's recruiting efforts rather than the earlier part. And there's not you know, some major program right across town that they're having to go up against. I think if they can continue to, you know, have stability in that staff and have stability in that program, Colorado's efforts will continue to get better. Um, Brandon, there's news this week that uh, Tyson Summers, who was a holdover from Mel Tucker's era, was let go, uh, the defensive coordinator there. I did you hear much about him on the recruiting trail or what uh, any impact this could have on recruiting? I don't think it'll have too much of an impact. I mean, really the guy that everybody talks about when it comes to recruits, recruiting at Colorado has been Darren Shiverini, the offense coordinator. He's a former Colorado receiver. That guy bleeds black and gold. He's been a part of that program as a player and as a coach for much of his career. So he's been their primary recruiter. Uh, Demetrius Martin, who's got long Pac-12 ties, whether he was at Arizona, UCLA, Washington, even as a grad assistant at SC, He's another one of their prominent recruiters. So I think Durrell has been able to keep the guys that he inherited in a case like Shiverini, uh, Darian Hagan as well, but then also brought his own guys that I think he can recruit, um, that he thinks can recruit Taylor Embry, a, a, another young name. Uh, a lot of these guys that we've been talking about on this show have been guys that were just playing college football, you know, not too long ago. And Taylor Embry's another guy that, you know, a lot of kids are speaking highly of him. He was originally from uh, Colorado. His dad was the coach there for a couple of years and dad played there. He played for Carl Durrell at UCLA and he was really key in getting Eric Olson. So I think Durrell's got a good staff and with the departure of Summers, I think that allows him to continue to put his own thumbprint on this staff. Looking at, um, because we can offer a little bit of perspective having uh, followed Durrell during his recruiting time at UCLA. I remember one of the knocks on him, and I don't know how fair it was given who they were going against but in Pete Carroll, but one of the knocks was not necessarily afraid to compete, but um, a little bit would just kind of let the top recruits, uh, you know, kind of go unobstructed for a little while um, to USC rather than actually, you know, fighting hard for him on the recruiting trail. And I know that was one of the knocks. I don't know how legitimate it was. Um, what's your sense of Durrell as a recruiter now? I know you probably have limited information because he you know, wasn't able, as you talked about, wasn't able to do a ton for quite a while. But what's the feedback from guys? Um, and do you think he's changed as a recruiter um, in his you know, long years in the wilderness? I, you know, I think he's learned. I think he's learned that, again, I think people don't, really understand I mean, you two guys would because you were both covering UCLA and USC to a large extent when Carl Durrell was at UCLA when Pete Carroll was at USC and I mean it's hard enough to compete against USC in a normal time but when they have an absolute juggernaut I think the five years that Durrell was at UCLA USC won two national championships and played for a third and they were obviously actually I think I think I think one of those was vacated Ryan can you clarify <laughs> I'm, uh, no, there, there was not, no vacations there. Okay. <laughs> I served that one up and I didn't even intend to. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, I think you look back at what he was dealing with. I mean, that's a hard recruiting, just a, a hard recruiting haul to have to do when you've got this 800 pound monster right across town. But I also think that if you look kind of towards the end of his time at UCLA, the recruiting got better. And if you look at some of the players that, you know, either Rick Neuheisel had or 
some of the players that were still there when Rick, when Jim Mora took over, guys like Dayton Jones and Jonathan Franklin, those were Carl Durrell recruits that were fifth-year seniors by the time that, that Jim Mora took over at UCLA that you know turned out to be great evaluations, great recruiting plucks for what Carl Durrell was able to get considering how much of a behemoth he was going up against at USC. And I think he really learned down the stretch – you know, this is how you have to recruit. You can't take low-hanging fruit, which if you look at the phrase, that's a very Durellian recruit, uh, you know, that, that came from kind of the low-hanging fruit, the running joke, of, well, there's no pro- no photo attached or no profile <laughs> available. And then those guys ended up having to play early on, and it led to some very mediocre seasons. But I think towards the end of his time, he started to figure out and started making some, you know, a little bit more off the grid type of hires. I think there were some hires that, you know, maybe raised some eyebrows and there were certainly things that went on when some of those hires were made that drew, you know, kind of some unwanted attention, but it paid off in recruiting. And I think that even though he's been away from college football for so long, let's say for the year he was at Vanderbilt, I think this time around by retaining some of those key assistants at Colorado and, you know, being able to just kind of have an understanding of this is how you have to recruit in modern day football, I think that there was a lot of positivity around Colorado recruiting. And I think that again, when they get the opportunity to show off their facilities and bring kids out to Boulder in the spring or in the fall or in the summer, it's certainly going to pay off. But again, I don't think any coach had to recruit with the arm tied behind his back worse in all of college football this year than Carl Durrell. All right. We got one last team uh, in the Pac-12 South, uh, ranked number 11 in the Pac-12. We have Arizona Wildcats. Yeah, tough class. Uh, 74th nationally, 11th in Pac-12, average rating of 0.8366. Very, very, very rough class, um, but obviously some um, extenuating circumstances with the coaching turnover. Uh, Jed Fish, the new head coach, uh, they signed 15 guys, um, four hard commits. So it's not as if numbers are particularly low either. Um, you know, for Oregon State, they're number 12, but they've only signed nine guys. Um, they have taken five transfers so far. Brandon, what's your sense of this class? Um, how much of it is just the simple fact that Jed Fish has kind of walked into this and had to inherit it? Um, and how do you think it might go from here. Are they still looking to sign guys? Who else is potential for them? Is there energy on the recruiting trail? Give Arizona fans some positivity. Um, the positivity is that Kevin Summers is no longer the head coach <laughs> and the Mazzonis are gone. So you got that going for you. And, you know, basketball is sitting out the NCAA tournament in hopes that the NCAA doesn't come down on them. So I'm just trying to find anything. But from a football standpoint, it was timing. I mean, really, they didn't have a choice. They had to fire Kevin Sumlin and to give up a 70 spot to ASU at home, even though nobody was at the game to watch it, that was essentially their hand being forced. The problem was is it came four days before the early signing period. So while Arizona didn't have much of a choice, that caused quite a few of their commits to hold off on signing. And most importantly, their highest rated commit at the time was Clay Millen, a quarterback, four-star quarterback out of Washington who had committed to Arizona in June. He decided when the firing of Kevin Sumlin that he wasn't going to sign in December, was going to wait until February. And then last week ultimately decommitted from Arizona. And I anticipate he will completely go his separate way and not sign with Arizona. So now Arizona goes from a program that had four or five quarterbacks to now having Kevin Doyle and uh, 
what's their guy's name? Will Plummer, because Rhett Rodriguez is in the portal. Grant Gunnell, Gunnell already went into the portal, already got screwed Gunnell. up. You got it right yeah, the first time. Okay, Gunnell, uh, who's Gunnell now at this point. Um, <laughs> I think it, now, Arizona, you're seeing how quickly they hit the transfer market. And what's probably the most fascinating part of the transfer market is that three of those four guys are native Arizonans. And one of them, most importantly, is an Arizona legacy whose mother went to Arizona, whose father played at Arizona, whose older brother played at Arizona. And he kind of spoke to where Arizona's program was at under Kevin Sonlin when he picked Colorado and decided to sign with them, Jason Harris, who is now back at Arizona, has already announced that he's transferring there. He was an All-American, Under Armour All-American. His father, Sean, was part of the great Desert Swarm defenses. Uh, his older brother, Jalen, has been a part of this Arizona program. So he comes back. We talked about this earlier with the state of Arizona bleeding. What they're now seeing is some of these guys are coming back. Drake Anderson out of Chandler. Gunnar Maldonado out of Chandler. Both those guys decided to leave Northwestern and come back and play at Arizona. And they come from the great Chandler program. Isaiah Rutherford's out of California, out of the Sacramento area. But he left Notre Dame to come to Arizona. So there's some promise that they're now, instead of having to go and get maybe some unproven high schoolers with a new staff, with a, with a large amount of coaches on that staff who have either been out of coaching or have been out of college football the last few years, when you can get four or five transfers, you're it's less risky than going after unproven high schoolers to fill out a class. So I anticipate that Arizona is going to probably hit another two or three guys at least in the transfer portal to try to, you know, uh, build some more talent and build some more depth in that program, because this might be a little bit of a recruiting, a rebuilding job from Jed Fish. Yeah. Speaking of Jed Fish, it just seems like he gets it. Some of the social media posts are funny. It's it. I'm not sure how great of a recruiter he is, but it just seems like he's going to be doing the right things. I think if we're talking to you a year from now, my guess is Arizona is not the 11th ranked class in the PAC 12. Would you, would you think that's fair? Yeah, I, and I would say that I think a big part of that is that he's got assistant coaches that understand how important it is to recruit. And he's got some assistant coaches that have had success when it comes to recruiting. Jimmy Doherty was one of the few bright spots in Chip Kelly's recruiting efforts the last few years. He's been a very good receivers recruiter uh, the last few years when he was at UCLA. He brings him on staff. Kevin Cummings, who was one of the up-and-coming recruiters in the Mountain West when he was at San Jose State. Uh, another kid that I covered just a few years ago played at Oregon State. Jordan Powell has done a great job of not just recruiting tight ends, but his tight end development when he was at Washington, went to UNLV for a year. Now he's back in the Pac-12. He's got tremendous ties into Nevada, tremendous ties into San Diego, and you know even Brandon Carroll. You know, obviously, he's probably not the recruiter his dad was, but Brandon understands recruiting. He was part of the USC program when they were recruiting uh, when they were recruiting Juggernaut. He went down to Miami and had some success down recruiting at Miami. So. Even with some of the hires that he's made that may have had NFL ties or more recent NFL experience, those are all guys that have had some college recruiting experience and some college recruiting success. So I think Fish really got that and that if you're going to you know, be coming into to a job that you know, people may think that this isn't the greatest hire, look no further than what Arizona State did a few years ago when Herm Edwards got hired and how quickly he attacked recruiting. The difference is that Fish is hired after the early signing period. Herm Edwards was hired three weeks before the early signing period. So Fish just has a little bit more to overcome. That's why I think 2022 will be when he really starts to see the, the fruits of their labor. 
just looking at that staff, just kind of generally, that defensive staff, I don't know, man. That's a pretty good staff. You got defensive coordinator Don Brown, who like very literally had like four elite defenses, like top five, top ten defenses at Michigan before having a bad one this year. But like really good coordinator. And then, I mean, Dwayne Walker. Brandon Huffman. Dwayne Walker coaching DBs. 2008 is excited. They are riled up for the dream team. (laughs) The dream team. The dream team. Jed Fish, Brennan Carroll, and Dwayne Walker. It's kind of up there with Norm Chow, Dwayne Walker, and Rick Neuhauser, right? There have been so many. I hate to turn everything into a UCLA conversation, but there have been so many moments in UCLA history that you just look back and you just, you've got a cringe laugh. And mm-hmm. the announcement in Polly Pavilion of Rick Neuheisel with his dream team of Dwayne Walker and Norm Chow. Oh, boy. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Anyway, how do you think Walker's going to do? I mean, he hasn't recruited in uh, shit seven years. Uh, and he's yeah. I think he's in his 60s now. But uh, he brought some energy back when he was at UCLA. He did. And, you know, it, it was a hard road to haul when he was at New Mexico State because literally nobody – willingly chooses to go to uh, to New Mexico State to play. And as the head coach, it was tough. But he was able to get a few guys that New Mexico State in, in normal years wouldn't have gotten. So I think if he still has that youthful energy, then, you know, that's probably going to be helpful. The, the problem is, is that you got four coaches kind of like that, that are a little bit more elderly. I'm not an ageist at all because I'm getting up there. I'm almost as old as Ryan. So I'm already getting up there in the in the gray hair department. But we got Don Brown, you got Ricky Hundley, you got Chuck Cecil, and then you have Dwayne Walker. These are guys that are a little bit long in the tooth. And like we talked about with Arizona State, you know, recruiting has started to become kind of a young man's game. And so if those guys can show that energy that their experience kind of belies their, you know, it gives them that experience, that wisdom to be still successful recruiters, then I think Arizona may have hit the jackpot. But if you get, like we've seen at some schools in the Pac-12, when you hire kind of an older veteran type who kind of is shunning recruiting, that's when you really put your roster at a detriment. All right. Well, we broke them all down. All the schools for the Pac-12 North last week and all the schools for the Pac-12 South this week. Uh, Awesome job, Brandon. Thanks. Thank you. Sorry to make the age (laughs) joke about you, Ryan. Hey, that's okay. I'm old, man. I'm 50 (laughs) now. What are you going to do? It's up there. Dave's still like 29 or something. I don't even know. He's just like a baby. No, I can run for president. Oh, yeah. He's 35 now. Um, All right. Well, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back. And uh, we did get some tweets and we have some other questions. Uh, If Brandon, you want to stick around for a few minutes and answer them, that'd be awesome. I'm here. All right. Back in a minute, everybody. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right. We're back here on the podcast of champions. This is the favorite part of the show. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience. Oh, God. This is always death. Yeah, it shouldn't be too bad this week, hopefully. Um, why don't we start off with a voicemail, Dave, and then you can uh, read the first question from, I think we got Chris and Soul, but... I'll play the voicemail for you first, and we'll get Brandon's thoughts on this. What's up, guys? This is Evan from Tempe. I've called it a couple times, called last week, and I'm wanting to call it again. So uh, growing up, my team was USC, but I go to ASU now, and so I like them too. And um, just something about this fan base just loves Herm Edwards, just obsessed with the guy. And, um, you know, I, I personally just want to know what you guys think about that because, I mean, in his first three years, he's gone seven and five, seven and five, and now, you know, two and two, 500. So, I mean, that's pretty bad, you know, for a three year stretch. Uh, we went seven and five and fired Todd Graham as we should have. And then we didn't make any progress the next year. Basically, no progress the next year. Now 500, even worse. And I've heard that he's such a great recruiter, but he's signed one average class, one decent class, and, you know, looking like what's going to be a pretty terrible class here in 2021. So, I just don't really understand. I'm a senior right now, so I just watched four years of a pretty, pretty underwhelming football, pretty bad football. And so I uh, just kind of want to know what you guys think. You know, am I right to be frustrated? Or, you know, are, are these people right in that Herm Edwards is basically Nick Saban? So thank you, guys. Peace. What do you think, Brandon? Uh, did he just describe Steve Sarkeesian? <laughs> seven five, Ooh, seven, seven wins. Sark. Oh, the callback. I love it. Nice. I just, you know, we had to throw homage to the old school Pac-12 Steve Sarkeesian and El Siete, I think was the, the name that <laughs> he was coined. Uh, I think that this year was an incomplete. I don't, I don't think you can really take anything away from how this season went. I mean, yes, they were 2-2. Two and two. They're a couple plays away from being 4-0 and oh and probably winning the Pac-12 South if they don't completely melt down the final minutes against USC. And if they, you know, were able to push Dimitri Felton into the end zone, maybe five seconds sooner and gotten another shot at the clock. Cause they were driving towards the end of that game to beat UCLA. But I think they missed what three games this year and didn't really have a chance to show what they can do. But then they beat, what was it Utah? And then beat no, it wasn't Utah. Who did they beat? They beat somebody, and then they. Are you asking us to remember something? I well, because I can't remember. All right, they beat uh, they beat Arizona, and then Arizona State, or then Oregon State to close out the year. Okay, so they beat Oregon State, then it was Arizona to close out the year. Um, You know, and I think were they obviously a seventy point type of team? Probably not, but 
they were a team that really a two and two record gives you zero insight into where they are. I think if you looked at how they closed the season in 2019 with some, you know, more promising wins, winning their bowl game, uh, and then, you know, coming into this year with Jaden Daniels, who I still think is going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12 next year, we might start to see them trend back upwards in that nine to 10 win range. But I just think that this year is really hard to fairly gauge what, Herm Edwards and his staff has done. And I, I do think if you look at their recruiting, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be a terrible class. I think it may be left wanting for some more, but I think it's also because they're putting a lot of time and energy into, you know, just strengthening that program. But then they're still, they're being mentioned. They're in the top five for a lot of elite players in the 2022 class already. So I, I still think that better days are ahead for Herm Edwards and his staff. Well, yeah, and what I would say is I think you're heading into a classic show-me year, uh, Evan, uh, in 2021. Um, I don't think Herm's doing great there. Um, I don't think he's doing obviously poorly yet, mostly because this year is just kind of a mulligan. Uh, but next year does have to be good. Uh, you've got a junior quarterback. Um, you've got some returning guys. You've got a really easy non-conference schedule. Um, looking ahead, um, well, BYU might be tough, but um, uh, Southern Utah and UNLV should be just gimmies. Uh, that should be a year where the program is – because historically, I mean, ASU is a cyclical program, but every coach more or less has at least one truly very good year. Todd Graham had a couple, um, and it only took him two years to do it. Uh, Dennis Erickson had one his first year. Uh, Dirk Cutter had one in 2004. Um, all, all these guys are able to turn out um, elite years, and it looks like if it doesn't happen next year for Herm, I'd be wondering if it's going to happen. Um, I think they need to put together a really good year next year. And a, yeah. and a junior quarterback in Jaden Daniels should allow for there to be. I mean, a lot of their talent was, it was still pretty young. And I don't think that they have a lot of guys necessarily leaving early for the draft. They certainly aren't being, you know, pilfered like other Pac-12 schools are. So I think the makings are there for them to have a good season and, you know, potentially be the favorite in the Pac-12 South. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to get to the first email, Dave? I would love to. All right. This is from Chris from Seoul. Uh, subject line, Ich glaub mich knutz ein Eich. Got any idea, Ryan? You no that? clue. I didn't. I, I'll Google it. All right, you Google that while I uh, get started on this. Uh, hey guys, wow, 2020 was a snapper. You two had a great year, however. Rigidly maintaining mediocrity throughout must have been draining. Many thanks. Would you please bring insight into some oddities? One, KJ Costello flamed out in Starkville. Did he get overwhelmed by the academic challenges he faced as a student athlete? Uh, let's just take them as they come. Uh, yeah, that one was weird. Um, I don't think he was necessarily a good fit for Mike Leach's offense there. Kind of shocking. Yeah. There was talk about him being like one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC after that. What is it? The LSU game or something? Yeah, yeah but he Do just kept throwing picks. Bo Pelini yeah. a better defense coordinator than Bo Pelini. Wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's true. Um, that's just objective truth. Uh, yeah, he ended up throwing 11 picks this year and only six touchdowns. That's, Ooh, that's, that's pretty bad. bad. Um, yeah, no, I think it was I think it was a fit issue um, in that offense, and I don't think Leach showed a ton of confidence in him. 
And Leach, um, when things go poorly, he tends to just point fingers and blame people. Um, and I'm sure it's not a great growth environment uh, for a quarterback. Um, so I, I'm sure there's a lot of factors there. He was a much better uh, player in that Stanford offense. So I'm guessing it was a fit issue. One um, A, Ryan frequently said JT Daniels is afraid of competition. Then how, pray tell, did he rise through that powerhouse Georgia quarterback room? I don't remember you ever saying that. I've never said that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a joke. Is this a joke? Like a joke that we don't get. It's, it, I'm guessing it's a joke <laughs> that we don't get, which okay. means it's probably not a great joke. But no, that's not something there. I mean, I always said, like, if JT Daniels didn't get hurt, you know, and the, the beginning, the first game of last year when they brought in Graham Harrell, he would have had a good year just like Keaton Slovis did. And some of the fans were like, no, he was terrible. Look at him last year. Like, yeah, he had a terrible offense. And he was terrible. I thought he'd be good when he went to Georgia. He didn't get a chance right away. And then once he got a chance, he was good. I'm like, I think it's a pretty good quarterback. So that's, that's all I've ever said about him. I've never said he was afraid of competition. I mean, what's also crazy about that is that if you look at some of the, the preseason top 25s for 2021, there's three teams that are in the top five kind of you know system, uh, consistently that will be quarterbacked by a Southern California prospect. And if you throw Oklahoma in the mix with Spencer Rattler, that's four of the five teams that are constantly being talked about as the top five teams in college football next year that are likely to have a West Coast quarterback. And if C.J. Stroud wins the quarterback job at Ohio State, you could have the, conceivably the top five programs in the country next year. Four have California quarterbacks and one a quarterback from Arizona. And yet we wonder on the podcast of champions and on Twitter and all these other places why the Pac-12 is continuing to kick itself in the nuts every day. But, that, but you're just <laughs> cherry picking, Huff, because you're not even mentioning um, the other Southern California quarterback will have his team in the top five next year, Dorian Thompson Robinson. Mm, yes, I'll, 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 be a, I'll be a fan later on that one. Uh-huh. Uh, but then, you know, and then that doesn't even take into account the schools that are potentially the Pac-12, you know, a team that could be the Pac-12 favorite next year in Oregon, if it's Tyler Shuck or Ty Thompson. I mean, you could have five quarterbacks from or six quarterbacks from the, the West. West Coast, four from California, two from Arizona, and not one is playing for a local school. That's yeah. great. Crazy. Uh, real quick, uh, uh, the, the Google Translate on that German is, I think an oak smooches me. I mm. don't know what that is. I did, stripes came up when I Googled it, but I, I'm not sure what this, this is. All right. Let Hithlade do, do Hithlade things. Um, Chris, maybe do something different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> two, the volunteers, Jarrett Quarantano transferred to Wazoo. Was tape of Tennessee games unavailable to Rolo? <laughs> <laughs> you know how sometimes you... Like take remember the, the old show back in the day, Scared Straight, where you took kids to jail to show them what <laughs> it'll be like if you get into prison. I think that's what Nick Rolovich is doing. He brings Jared Guarantano in to <laughs> make sure Jaden Delora doesn't get COVID again and that he stays on the right track. Because I think that's going to scare Jaden Delora straight. I mean, there is there's very few things that Nick Rolovich has done this first year that I would say wasn't a good decision. I mean, what was a was a bad decision. I think he's done a fairly good job, but the Guarantano decision does kind of have me scratching my head a little bit because he's a very less than mediocre quarterback at a school that really shouldn't be as mediocre as it's been. Yeah. He's a Jake Bentley type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That's a good comp. A little um, bit of a mess today in, in, in Knoxville. If you guys have heard the, yeah, and there's firing the coach for cause, like firing like half the staff. The, Phil Fulmer resigning. For, 
That's code word for, man, we've made some bad decisions with our extensions in the middle of the season. You're, you know, you, we were okay with you bringing these guys in illicitly, but dang it, we gave you an extension. You went three and seven. Now we don't like the fact that you did that illicitly. <laughs> yeah. Go, going back to their coaching search, should they have hired, uh, who was it? Greg, Greg Schiano. Schiano. Yeah. Greg Schiano. Could have been worse. Yeah. Couldn't have been right. Well, they, no, remember, they, they could have had Mike Leach. Yeah, that's uh. true. They shut yeah, that he was, a, he was a done deal, and they fired the AD, and now look at that got them. Yeah, and uh, Shiano, um, I will say, noticeable improvement in year one uh, for Rutgers. Uh, Rutgers. Uh, they were three and six, but a much, much better team if you watched any Rutgers this year. So just saying. Not only that, but when you can produce a positive and upbeat Brian Doan, then you know that the Greg Shiano <laughs> yeah, no. is definitely worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Doan just defending his honor at UCLA football practices in the mid 2000s was incredible. Oh, I mean, and he could find the most inopportune moment to make you care about Rutgers only because he would start talking about Greg Schiano in his thick Jersey accent. Um, Schiano. <laughs> um, then we got number three. The Huskies gave a scholarship to a guy who had an average high school football season on the JV team, Heim. Did the loss of Chris Peterson hurt recruiting that much, or is Jimmy Lake trying to prove he is the smartest guy in the room or merely trying to show that he can out-chip Chip Kelly? <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was that bad. I think that this was a guy that, in fact, if I remember right, they offered him when Chris Peterson was still the head coach. The, he's a unique situation. He's not your typical average player who did play JV. Now, I know I brought it up last week. He hasn't played a staff of RC football, but he's from Germany. He moved over to the U.S. And of all the transfers that the Trinity League has taken in over the last few years, they pop the kid that comes from another country and make him play JV football. And that's what Maurice Heim did. So he had to play JV football for Santa Margarita, but he's 6'5", 240 pounds with a lot of upside and really a, kind of a new knowledge of the game of football. He's only been playing it for a couple of years. And that's a guy that's not going to have a lot of bad habits that they're going to have to measurable six. There you go. A lot of measurables there, but this isn't your typical going and getting a JV guy. If you're going to go after a guy that Washington signed that does leave you scratching your head, it's the defensive lineman that they signed out of Renton high school who not very many people. I mean, I think I have a pretty good pulse on state of Washington football and Ryland Spencer, who covers the state of Washington for 24 seven high school side. Didn't even really know who this kid was. That was more the where did that offer come from rather than Maurice Himes, who had other Pac-12 offers and a Penn State offer before he chose Washington. All right. And then finally, four, after the Oregon loss, Clay Helton said, our standard is championships. I actually see this program trending upward. If you look at it correctly, what are we missing? I'm not missing anything. I think he's dead right. (laughs) I love the championship word was sort of like vague. There was like. Pac-12 South is a championship, right? And, you know, but yeah, so there's... Uh, there, are, there are all kinds of championships. There's yeah. life championships, you know. Did LA you, City champions. Yeah, you know? there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, oh, I, we're, we're not I missing mean, anything because we agree with him, Chris. Yeah, I think that the it's all about the measure of the angle you're looking at to see that it's trending upwards. Yeah. All right. All the best and keep up the work, Chris, from Seoul. Thanks, Chris. Uh, let's go to Perk. Uh, he's got a multi-point email as well. Uh, number one, Dave, you compare Jim Mora and Mario Cristobal quite a bit. 
What factors led to Morris' downfall at UCLA, and do you see them playing out current, or and do you see them playing out currently or in the near future for Cristobal at Oregon? Uh, a lot of factors uh, led to Morris' downfall at UCLA, but I would say the primary one was uh, truly just absolute piss hires, um, just dog shit, horrible, um, really so, bad. So decent starting. ones, things you like they're. Middle of the road hires, you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Average? Exactly. Um, starting with um, assistant coach Mike Tuiasasopo. That was the real harbinger of doom. Um, and then promoting Jeff Ulbrich was bad, but almost looks good in comparison to what followed that. Um, hiring Kennedy Palomalu to be the offensive coordinator after more or less firing Noel Mazzoni um, was maybe one of the most grimly stupid decisions ever made um, in history, like actually um, like right up there with Napoleon invading Russia. Yeah. Uh, and, and still might be worse than that decision. Obviously um, certainly led to more death and carnage. Um, so uh, yeah, no, it was really, really bad hires. Um, but I think it was more, it was a really, really pronounced symptom um, of the root cause, which is I think his level of commitment to the job waxed and waned uh, based on just kind of whatever was going on with him. Um, he wanted, I won't say he wanted out of UCLA very early on, but he flirted a lot with NFL jobs or whatever random coaching jobs were open. And I think he got cheesed off that maybe he wasn't as appreciated as he felt he should have been or whatever. I think there was a lot of interpersonal stuff that made him, uh, maybe a little bit less uh, driven in the job as time went on. And I think it led to some decisions in hiring that were uh, really lazy. Um, and if you look at his first and Jimmy Sexton didn't do him any favors either. No, no. Jimmy Sexton really screwed him. And I think he, uh, Jimmy Sexton, his agent, I think really um, drove a wedge um, between Mora and I think some key decision makers at UCLA. But on top of that, if you look at Mora, his first um, staff at UCLA, it was almost universally guys he didn't know. Um, he did a great job of hiring guys based off their reputations, based off asking people around, like, who are the good recruiters? Who's a really good offensive coordinator at the college level? And so he hired a bunch of guys that he didn't really know that well. And then as time went on, he started hiring guys he knew, uh, which is generally a bad way of hiring. Um, so end of the day, I think it was mainly um, – coaching decisions and and who he hired uh for Cristobal Oregon I don't know if that's playing out the same way um I don't think they've really handled defensive coordinator that well despite all the appreciation these guys appear to be getting um the defense wasn't particularly good this year and they uh um took a major step back from last year despite having still quite a bit of talent so I'm interested to see what they do there um but I, I, it's too early. I mean, I think it's, it's it was a little bit retrospective on Mora, though I think everyone thought they, that he had made a mistake with Palomalo. Um, but then Tom Bradley turned out to be an awful hire as well at defensive coordinator. Um, so it, I, I think it will be, have to be a little bit retrospective. You have to kind of judge based off results so far. And I would say for Cristobal, um, last year was really good. This year, that team had some major flaws and if they don't get the quarterback position figured out, cause I don't know if Tyler Shuck's the answer. Um, it, it might not be great. Yeah. Any thoughts, Brandon? 
I, I agree with everything that I mean. Dave said it best. I, I just let him have it. All right. Um, we, we want to get Brandon like the full uh, experience being on the POC because now I have to ask you, Dave. All right. Worst decision: Napoleon invading Russia, going to Moscow, or Hitler? Which one mm. was worse? Because Hitler has like, hey, that didn't work for Napoleon. Like I could have done not probably had more success, right? Like what he had Stalingrad yeah, siege for like three years or whatever. But yeah, what uh, which one was worse? It's a really tough one. I would think um, this is another one where you have to judge it in almost retrospect. But if you look at the like industrial capacity of the Soviet <laughs> Union um, compared to what Germany could really bring to bear, like literally if you wiped all the other combatants off the, the playing field, right? And it was just Germany. All they got to do is go take down the Soviet Union. They probably wouldn't have been able to do it. Like just even if they didn't have to worry about Africa or worry about Britain landing an invasion force or even worry about the United States, if it was just the Soviet Union with their industrial capacity and yeah, for sure, the U.S. sending them some stuff, um, it would have been Germany probably loses anyway. So that was a really bad decision. Napoleon got pretty close. I mean, if he hadn't had to deal with that, you know, awful Russian winter, which, well, frankly, you kind of kind of have to deal with that in, uh, in Russia in the winter. Key, key part of invading. Key part yeah. of invading Russia. Um, they might like Napoleon came closer. So I'm going to I'm going to give it to that. That being a much worse decision for Hitler. Obviously, um, it's it's better for everyone that he did choose to invade the Soviet Union because that led to, um, you know, Nazi yeah. Germany falling. Uh, <laughs> but but certainly a worse decision for him um, from like a winning a war standpoint. Nice. See, Brandon, you feel more part of the show. Did you have any thoughts on that before we go on? <laughs> I like, I mean, I'm not touching I, that. I, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Dave spelled that out better than I ever could have. All right. Uh, well, okay. Number two from Perk is how involved is in the recruiting process our offensive and defensive coordinators, Brandon? I think a lot depends on what kind of offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator are they? Are they a coordinator in title and business card, or are they actually a coordinator in play calling duties? I think, you know, we've seen a lot of the new titles, the assistant head coach, the associate head coach, the passing game coordinator, the run game coordinator. I think when you have the titles, a lot of times it's just a fancy title. So it it seems like with the majority of coordinators, there's, I wouldn't say both sides are not involved in recruiting, but it's very rare that you find both coordinators super involved in recruiting, especially on the offense side of the ball. Typically the offense coordinator is his job is to find a quarterback and he maybe recruits one guy a year and then he helps out and dabbles in with other position groups as well on the offensive side of the ball but really their baby is the quarterback position whereas I think you do see more involvement from the defense coordinators in the recruiting cycle you know Jimmy Lake was a key name that we always heard when he was the defense coordinator at Washington before he became the head coach uh, Pete Kwiatkowski has been involved uh, to a large extent there Andy Avalos before he took the head coaching job at Boise State he too was named a lot. Antonio Pierce was the co-defense coordinator this year. He's been a huge linchpin in Arizona State's recruiting the last few years. So I think it, it's more common to see the defense coordinator really involved in recruiting than the offensive coordinator, largely because just from a position standpoint, the OC is really going to just try to find his one quarterback and keep him warm the entire way until he signs. Yeah. For USC a couple of years ago, like T. Martin was like the main recruiter just because that's 
they didn't really have a lot of recruiters and they promoted him to offensive coordinator. So situations like that, I guess it could be, but for the most part, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem like they're involved all that much. It, it, and that's kind of how it's been. It's that you get, you know, some that their job is to just be an X's and O's guy. And you don't necessarily want them to talk to recruits because that might actually hurt you with the recruit more than help you. <laughs> nice. All right, number three, is there a standard criteria for building a well-rounded recruiting class? Always need a quarterback commit or always need a certain amount of linemen? What's the uh, standard there, Brandon? I mean, I think you have to have a quarterback in every cycle. Um, you, some, some schools will, i.e., we talked about Stanford last week and how they had some very unique approaches to quarterback recruiting for a stretch there. And then they wonder why their offense has been more abundant times. I think you need to have a quarterback in every year, at least one. Some years you may have to take two because the inevitable um, likelihood that a quarterback does leave. I think you want to try to get two to three offensive linemen in any cycle. If you can have 12 to 14 offensive linemen, that gives you a two deep. And then some guys that could be three instead of more developmental guys. Um, I, I think one thing the Pac-12, I know this is more of a general question, but I think for the Pac-12 there's a dearth of big men that are good elite defense alignment out West just about every other cycle. There might be one year where there's good defense alignment. The next year it's pretty barren, but I think in a perfect world, the, you would want two to three defensive linemen in each class. I think those are really the key positions. We never see schools really kind of shortchange themselves on receivers. But I think if you look at the programs that have been the most successful over the last 15, 20 years, they've really done a good job of, not just adding, you know, quantity or quality on the defensive and offensive line, but quantity as well to allow for depth, attrition, injuries, and whatever you might need. You still have enough bodies in the trenches. And one last one from Perk. Uh, in your guys' time covering recruiting, what prospect was the biggest surprise? And he says uh, in parentheses, had a better career than expected. So give us like an upside. We can all guess, give one or two upside surprises from recruiting. Hmm. Well, that's good because usually it's like, oh, which one did you completely screw the pooch on right. <laughs> and end up being way better or end up sucking when you thought he was going to be good? I would say probably, gosh, there's, there's a couple guys. I would say one would, would probably be Taylor Rapp. And, you know, I think Justin Herbert in retrospect is that now I do say that with the caveat that. As many people know, the 2000 fall of 2015 was a very difficult time in my life when my daughter was sick and I was on leave for much of that year. And so some of my great recruiting misses happened in the 2016 class with Justin Herbert and Taylor Rapp. One ended up being a top five pick. One ended up being the Pac-12 freshman of the year and, you know, playing for the Rams now. And both those guys were three stars that I just didn't get a chance to see play their senior year because I was dealing with much more, you know, prevalent issues in my life, it's no excuse. I still should have been able to evaluate them, right? But if I look at some of the misses that I have, it's just been not even so much a misevaluation, more than it's been a lack of confidence that they were going to be better college players than they were as just solid high school players. So I would say Taylor Rapp and Justin Herbert are two that are kind of glaring right now because of the success that they had at the collegiate level and now the success that they've translated that to the NFL. And I probably should have done a better job of evaluating this. So those are two L's that I'll wear um, and no excuses there, even though I did use a pretty big excuse and a very, very one that should make everybody feel very bad for ever questioning me on those rankings. So uh, yes. it that might've been why I used it, but no, I mean, th those are two that 
I, I was very familiar with Taylor Rapp, being that my wife's from that same area of Washington that he's from. And even when I saw him play in high school, it was like I never thought he would be as good as he became at Washington. So that's one, probably even more so than Herbert. Herbert was kind of an incomplete because of the injuries really affecting him later in his high school career before he blew up into a recruit and then just not getting a chance to see him. But Rapp's one that I still kind of to this day probably feel the worst about. And I think it's probably overemphasized by the fact that a guy who I had rated ahead of him in that class, Isaiah Gilchrist out of Bellevue, really didn't do much of anything at Washington. And so if I could have those two back, I would probably flip those two in a heartbeat instead of taking that L that Taylor Rapp has given me for the last four or five years. How about you, Dave? Um, one off the top of my head would be Jayon Brown. Um, Cause I remember watching him in high school and I was like, yeah, okay. But he turned out to be, Damn, he turned out to be really good at UCLA, and then he's turned out to be a pretty solid NFL player um, at he's linebacker. A green dot. He, he's a green dot. You know what that means, right? I don't watch the NFL. Is that the guy who gets the mic? Yes. And I, I had a college coach talk. We were talking about Jalen Brown about a week and a half ago, and he was saying the same thing. He's like, we would. I never saw that coming, and now he's a green dot for a team that's been in the playoffs the last couple of years. I know. It's just friggin' wild. Um other than that, I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, you could make a case for – let me pull it up. Uh, you could make a case for Fabian Moreau, but I didn't even know what to expect. Um, but very low-ranked three-star out of Florida. Might have even been like one of those rare two-stars at that time um, on the old scout rankings, uh, but turned out to be a starting you know, cornerback who was actually very good by the time he was a senior. Um, but those would be two off the top of my head. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to like pictures. I mean, think of guys. I, I, I remember like never being impressed with uh, Tua Tungavailoa at like those Nike camps and stuff. I'm just like, eh, it just didn't seem like he's that good. Obviously he had a, a great uh, college career. He's in the NFL now. Um, I didn't, I didn't get to see him a lot, but I never, Keaton Slovis was a three-star dude and I just kind of like, yeah, he'll red shirt. He's not going to play. And, and he ends up, you know, having a record setting freshman year. I never saw that coming um he's a depth guy because jt daniels is scaring everybody off yeah yeah exactly like they didn't get a you you thought they could get like a different you know a higher rank quarterback but no you have to go like five star one year and then like you know three star or something the uh the next year um chetto and wusu was like a three-star safety at narbonne and ends up being like this linebacker at usc second i think a second round pick doing well with the chargers i believe so I never pictured him being some kind of like stud, uh, you know, anchor on the defense for USC, and he was definitely that. But I'm sure there's zillions. Like I don't, I don't know, want just... to rank him a four star, but Greg made him a three. So that yeah. was so that's a Biggins failure. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's Biggins' fault. Ah, I like it. Let's as long as we can blame Biggins, I'm real happy with that. That's cool. That's yeah. at G Biggins at Greg Biggins on Twitter. <laughs> nice. All right, so. Next, we have Hithliday, our man Hithliday. Navasana, which I believe is the yoga pose where you get your butt on the ground and lift your legs and your torso up off the ground. Oh, a, a seated asana in modern yoga. Okay. I think. Anyway, um, last week, Cal got a lot of praise for the recruiting of offensive skill players, but I think the offensive line has been at least as big of a problem in their output for the last three seasons, and it'll be getting worse in the next couple of years as seniors like Jake Curhan and Mike Safel 
leave the program without obvious replacements. They only took three linemen in 2021, and all of them are in the bottom half of their class, including the lowest and fourth lowest rated guys. Isn't this what Angus McClure was hired to fix? Does he have a special knack for identifying diamonds in the rough, and the three guys they got are surefire starters? I thought that's a question for me. I I, I don't know anything about Cal's recruiting. I love Angus McClure. Um, I, I like with a, the, with a firm passion. I like the offensive lineman that they signed. I really like the kid out of Minnesota that they got, Bastion Swinney. I think that you know he's a guy that's going to have an opportunity to come in and play right away. I know we've got him listed as a guard. He's got more of a tackle background, but he's got that position versatility where he it wouldn't surprise if he ends up playing tackle in college or if he does slide inside. I like Ryan Lang a lot. I think that was you know not just from a from a stand. I talked about Lumagia Hearns last week who they signed out of De La Salle who had a Pied Piper effect, but. Pittsburgh's got a lot of young talent in this 2023 class. They have four players, I think, that have a Cal offer. And so Ryan Lane, from a just a perception standpoint, is really going to help Cal at Pitt. But I think he's a guy that will probably be a right tackle in college, but he too could end up being a pretty punishing interior lineman as a guard. Dylan Jemptegaard, the other kid that they signed out of Washington, uh, another guy, I think he's a pure guard. So he got two guys that could play tackle, they could play guard, you know, depending on what they need, I think wherever they kind of feel an immediate need to plug some of these younger guys in, both Lang and Swinney, give them that opportunity. Uh, and then Jim Tegard, I think he's got the potential to be a center, even if that's what they needed him to play uh, in college, but he's probably more of a guard. But I think anytime you can get guys that have the ability to play either left tackle or right tackle, or they could slide inside, that that gives you a little bit of an advantage rather than getting a guy who's a pure guard or a pure center in this class. So I do like what, what Cal did on the offensive line recruiting. And I think Angus getting hired as late as he did. And then obviously, you know, we've seen firsthand how Angus is literally related to everybody in the Western part of the United States, not being able to see all of his cousins and nieces and nephews and uncles and aunts on the road when there is a dead period preventing them from going on the road, kind of neutralized him. But I think that if they're let back on the road, that you'll start to see what Angus is so valuable about. And that's being related to everybody. (laughs) Uh, and then the second part of his question, uh, Jesus freaking Christ, uh, on the March 19th, 2018 podcast, I asked you boys, which was the better explanation for UW's previous quarter century absence from national prominence, a string of unwise coaching moves after Don James's resignation or the structural constraint of UW's local recruiting base. You both went with the latter that Washington has a small, smaller population versus the states of comparable programs in terms of urban location and historical support like Georgia and Miami and fewer elite athletes on which to build their recruiting classes. Three years later, Washington's in-state recruiting was all Brandon Huffman could talk about last week. Their top five signees in the 2021 class are all originally Washington kids. The state apparently has seven good offensive line prospects in 2022. And the big story this year is the two in-state five stars who got away. Would you care to revisit the question? Ryan, would you care to revisit that question that we both remember very well? From three years ago? No. Hitler <laughs> Stop this. Stop. On March 19th, 2018, I stopped reading. I'm like, oh, okay, what? I don't even know what uh, I was doing on March 19th, 2018. I would, I would still kind of go the structural constraint of UW's local recruiting base. It's still not, you know, California. Um you know, it's it's a it's a pretty good state for talent, but it's not California. It's not one of the top big boys. So they have to recruit outside of their immediate footprint all the time. 
And uh, that's that's hard to do unless you have like a super elite coach. So yeah, I'm gonna still go recruiting base. Do you have any thoughts, Brandon? Um, I mean, that was a long question. Why take two minutes to answer that question when 20 minutes will do on that and make us go back three years? So basically, um, is it coaching hires or is it the recruiting base that has limited UW as a potential elite program since 91? No, I think what it is is that, and I said this last week, I think Washington's been kind of the last state and Seattle's been like the last region that hasn't seen so many players leave the region that it's kind of a shock to the system when players leave. But this is something that Southern California, that Northern California, that Phoenix, that Denver, and other states in the Pac-12 footprint have been dealing with for years. I don't think it has anything to do with, with poor hires, because I think the Chris Peterson hire was a fantastic hire. I think that Tyrone Willingham wasn't a good one. I don't think Steve Sarkeesian was a great hire, but he was a, you know, a solid hire considering what they needed at the time. I don't think it's been coaching hires, and I don't think it's the base. I think it's that... This was kind of the last stranglehold, in my opinion, of keeping local kids home more often than not. Whereas now that the respect for the state's football and the high school football in the state has grown, more and more programs nationally are coming to recruit here. And now you're seeing more guys leaving. So I think it has more to do with being a victim of its own success. And maybe you can blame the Seahawks because I think there is a little bit of a correlation that when the Seahawks won their first Super Bowl, you saw a rise in youth football being played in Washington. And now those guys that were third and fourth grade at the time are now among the top recruits in the country as seniors. And I think that they become a victim of their success that now everybody in the country is starting to recruit Seattle like they've recruited L.A., like they've recruited Phoenix, like they've recruited the Bay Area and like they've recruited, you know, other parts of the Pac-12. So that's to me what I would probably chalk a lot of it up to. All right. Uh, we have a few tweets too, Brandon, and we'll let you go. You've been more than generous with your time this week and last. Uh, we'll go. Hitler Day was right up the top. He said, uh, in December, you boys kicked my question about another going back. That's only at least a couple months and not uh, not three years. One, one, one month. One month, yeah. Um, in December, you boys kicked my question about ASU's funky recruiting down the curb to this podcast. They dropped scholarship offers from five commits in the six weeks prior to early signing day and four commits not signed unexpectedly, including their number one and one more decommit on January 3rd. What's going on? It's a great, great question. A question that I think we kind of addressed earlier on in that there was a, I think what four that openly said that they were dropped, but I think it became, you know, we, we've seen this happen in the Pac-12 a lot where, a school gets some early commitments and then starts to realize we're recruiting better than we originally thought we were. And now we've got better players that are maybe more local, maybe more talented, maybe more higher profile that we want. So let's cool the shape from the bottom. And if you offend a kid in Wisconsin, you offend a kid in Iowa, what are the chances that you're going to continue to go back to the Midwest to recruit, especially after you drop a few guys? Probably not great. So if you're going to do it, it makes more sense to get yourself separated from the guys that are not in your Pac-12 footprint, that are not in your recruiting, your, your normal recruiting grounds. And I think it had more to do with there's the expectation that they could close better, whether it's with some more guys in the 2021 class. I think they really felt there was a good chance that they were going to get Corey Foreman. I think there was you know, a feeling that they were going to flip a guy like Jermaine Terry from Cal. I think that they probably expected – to close a little better than they did, but they wanted to make sure that they had the spots available. 
if they ultimately did land those guys. And, you know, if you get some guys that maybe were kind of reaches early on, especially with no evaluation period, to really get a chance to see these guys, so be it. Then you just have to pick it up in the 2022 class or hit the transfer portal harder. All right, this is from Westwood Bruins. Uh, is Ethan Young the most active uh, director of player personnel in the Pac-12? He seems to be as active as Brian Carrington from Utah or from UT. I don't know if he means Utah or yeah. University of Texas. University of Texas, yeah. Also, wow. is UCLA making strides in recruiting this year, or is it just because of the relative performance on the field? I think it's making strides in recruiting, partly because of the efforts of Ethan Young. I think he's been, you know, he's one of the few. Um, Guys who, when you talk to a recruit, they mention him more than they would mention a assistant coach recruiting him. And so I think he's kind of helped revamp their recruiting efforts. And he was super key in a lot of the players that they were able to flip down the stretch in the run up to signing day in December. And I think that, you know, a little bit more confidence on the football field has certainly helped his efforts and given him a little bit more credence when he is recruiting. But I, I definitely think he deserves a big amount of praise for how UCLA has recruited so much better in the 2021 cycle compared to previous years. We have one from uh, DC dog. It's at dog father DC for Brandon for Huffman. He says, uh, do you see a difference in how West coast recruits talk about the conference today? First five, 10 years ago. And what about high school coaches at the major high school programs? May I use this as a, as an opportunity to address an issue that was raised on Twitter on New Year's Day. You certainly may. Good, because I'm going to. So <laughs> on that day, when we were watching the two playoff games, I had made a couple of tweets that spoke to the fact that the West Coast had been bleeding talent. And I was talking about how in the Alabama-Notre Dame game, Najee Harris was making plays, how Aaron Banks for Notre Dame, the offensive line was making plays, Isaiah Foskey from De La Salle making plays. And then in the national championship game, you, or, I'm sorry, in the, in the sugar bowl, you have Chris Olave making plays, a West coast kid, a San Diego kid who both the LA schools slept on and recruited too late. You had, you know, towards the end of the game, Lathan Ransom coming in from Arizona. And so I made a point that like, there's a West coast party going on and no PAC 12 schools are invited. And there was a large number of people that were offended saying, well, if this is what you're saying, what are you telling recruits? First of all, I don't ever freaking tell recruits anything about the PAC 12. I let Larry Scott's product do that for myself, and I let the coaches, that's what they get paid. They're supposed to try to convince them, hey, this is not how it's going. I don't ever tell a recruit anything about the Pac-12 that isn't already, I don't, first of all, I don't have a club about the Pac-12, but secondly, the product speaks for itself. So my, that's my way of saying that the perception is not great. And when I talk to high school coaches, when they go on these unofficial visits, there are a lot of high school coaches that will take their recruits on the road and they'll go down and they'll visit SEC schools and they'll go down and they'll visit ACC schools and they'll go out and visit Big Ten schools. They'll go check out Notre Dame. They'll go down to the Big 12 schools. They'll go to the Pac-12 schools. And when they come back, these are the guys that have the ears of these recruits. They're much more blown away by the facilities and by the community and by the town and by the football energy in those regions compared to the Pac-12. You only have a couple Pac-12 schools that provide that same kind of energy for high school coaches and for recruits and for seven on seven coaches and the trainers that take the recruits on the road. That energy doesn't seem to exist as much in the PAC 12 as it does in other parts of the country. So the people that have the influence on these recruits, the coaches, the seven on seven coaches, the trainers, the private coaches, they are the ones that are going and saying, man, I don't understand how a kid could not pick 
Alabama or Ohio State after I went down there and I checked that out. Those places are incredible. So that's the perception. That's a wide perception held by a large number of empowerful, uh, very tied in, very vocal coaches that have much more of an influence in the recruits than people understand. All right. We've got a couple more. Uh, This is from Eric Hickman. Which Pac-12 quarterback recruit is most likely to get the Tyler Show or Grant Gunnell type pronunciation from Dave? Hmm. I'm going to say Sam Hard. Ooh. Ooh, I like it. No, that, that's not – that's no, because too many people know Brock and Gaiman. So yeah. Heward, Heward's not going to get butchered. I could say Kajaya Holloway. I'm sure it's going to be Kajia. I'm sure we'll have a couple of different pronunciations for that. Um, Oregon State's got a kid named Sam Vidlak coming in. I could see that being Sam Vidlak. I could see it being Sam Vidlake. I mean, that would probably be one that I would tend to, to go with. Um, you know, Jackson Dart and Miller Moss are pretty plug-and-play-ish. Uh, Ty, Thompson, easy, yeah. Ty Thompson might be the easiest name in the conference to pronounce. Um, oh, here we go. Kai Milner. There's going to be a large faction of college football broadcasters that will no doubt call him Kai Milliner, even though there is only one I in his name. Actually, you know I, what? I'd, I'd go with that one, too, but I would go with – no, it's it's Miller. Like the N, you don't need that. That's extraneous. It's it's Kai Miller. That, yeah, there you go. So we're either going to go Milliner by somebody who's going to read it too closely or Miller by somebody who didn't read it at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go Kai Miller. Kai Miller. Like it. uh, it's a much – it's a better quarterback name. I like it. All right. And uh, it's 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 wasted wasted uh wasted consonant right there. Yes. Right. We got one from Chase uh Howell. He says, What's Brandon hearing on Clay Millen? Sounds like Colorado is back in the mix. Who are some of other suitors? I think Colorado right now, I talked about it on a podcast I was on earlier today. Um, that I think Colorado is the school to watch there. They were the runner-up when he picked Arizona back in June. His mom's originally from Colorado. His family's got a dog named Denver, as he pointed out back when he got the Colorado offer. I actually had a crystal ball on Colorado early on until I started getting the Arizona vibe before he picked Arizona. So I know even with Colorado having a a signature, and in fact, he already enrolled with Drew Carter and then getting the transfer JT Shroud out of Tennessee, who was originally from Southern California, I still think there's a very good chance that Colorado ends up with Clay Millen in their 2021 recruiting class. All right. Do we want any more of these? Uh, we can. Well, there's one like Jay, Jay Brown. Oh, yeah, He's got three um, of them, but maybe, I don't know if you want to just pick one or. That's fine. I'll just do them really quick. Brandon, okay. we're going to do these rapid fire. Are you ready? Boom. Go. All right. Thoughts on Vic Soto as a recruiter. I think he's doing a really good job, and he's the main reason that USC is still being mentioned in the top five for JT Tuimolo. All right. Uh, fave most underrated Pac-12 South recruit in the 21 class? Who fave most underrated recruit in this? Golly. I'm going to say probably Jonah Ellis, even though everybody was properly rated because we do the ratings, so there's nobody that's underrated. They were all <laughs> properly rated. I would still go with probably Jonah Ellis. I think if you look at his brothers having played in college in the NFL, his dad being a first-round draft pick, that the bloodlines speak to a guy that I think should end up being a really good player, just maybe being overlooked because he's from Idaho. And then uh, thoughts on Drake London when he was in high school? Loved him. I mean, he was a top two, four, seven player for us back in the day. Um, you know, the big thing with Drake London back in the day was how serious was he going to be about football? 
because he was such an elite hooper. If I remember right, he had a number of basketball offers. And I want to say he had an offer from Virginia uh, that came in basketball before it came in football. So that kind of told you, if Tony Bennett likes you, then you're probably a pretty good basketball player. Uh, but he ended up being, I think, right on the edge of the top 247. He was a four-star for the majority of his recruiting cycle with us. And it was just always a matter of, you know, how focused is he going to be on football, being that he's a hooper. And obviously he's become extremely focused on football to the point. Ryan, didn't he say he's no longer playing basketball at USC? Yeah, he's only going to focus on uh, football now. So, you know, there, there's a guy that I think, you know, picked the right sport. There's a lot of six foot four shooting guards and small fours, but six foot four receivers that can run and catch like him. There's not as many of him, and I think he's making the right, the right decision on what sport to focus on. Awesome. Well, Brandon, again, we can't thank you enough. Uh, there's some great questions we got from the listeners. They're always awesome. Thanks for all the questions they sent in, and thanks for spending the time with us. Pretty much four hours of your last uh, eight days have been spent with us, so my, my apologies for that. Nowhere else I'd rather be than hanging out with you guys. <laughs> Tremendous. Can we have uh, you and Dave argue of like if IPAs are good or not? Could that could we end? Up, should we end on that? There, or? There's no argument. IPAs are the best beers that are made. Uh, they taste like um, a good IPA tastes like what would happen if you took a flower, put it in your armpit, and let it sit there <laughs> for about three days, and then um, turn that somehow into an essence that you put into water. <laughs> Um, that's what a good IPA tastes like. Um, Man. bad ones you, taste you like drink you, some bad, IPA. bad IPAs taste like if you took that flower and stuck it between some other part of your body. Um, so I knew this would be good. So I guess what I would say is, look, I'll drink an IPA cause you know, what the hell? I'm not, I'm not picky. Um, but I, there are, I don't know. Are, are there even 25 different types of beer? But if there are, there are 24 better types of beer than an IPA. You're either a porter drinker or you drink Coors Light. I I, I do like my porters and my stouts more than I like uh, IPAs. But yeah, no, I'll I'll drink a really I'll drink a really bad lager any day over over an IPA. I had a Coors Light like a week and a half ago. And I remember drinking like I was in high, I mean, not high school. Sorry. I was not drinking in high school in college. And it just, <laughs> it tasted like college. And then I was like, this is terrible beer. I'm going back to drink my Pliny the Elder that I have. Yeah. That's, that's, that's nice for you. Um, I think the, I think like the only like lager type beer that's like actively like repugnant for me was, um, and this is again, going back to college days, Milwaukee's best light. Mm. Uh, that one, I think if I smell it, it almost makes me vomit. I'm going to age myself here, but Ryan, do you remember Bud Ice? Oh, God, yeah, that was pretty bad. Oh, you can make a 32-ounce one of those last, like, on the $2 budget you had. If you <laughs> stayed at the party long enough, you can make it last the whole night. The problem is cold Bud Ice is terrible. Warm <laughs> Bud Ice tastes like absolutely urine. Not that I've ever tasted <laughs> urine, but that's what I imagine it tasted like. <laughs> Wait, I think... In college, like when the cheap beer we could get, I think Milwaukee's best was up there, but I don't remember a light version of that. So that was probably, yeah, that yeah, probably came later. Yeah, Milwaukee's best light, it, the 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 price was right. You know, it was, I think it was at one time I got it on a deal at Ralph's for nine ninety nine for a 30 pack. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. That's, I mean, you if you're in college, for. yeah, it that's gets, it, It's all about getting the job done, but that's the level, like as soon as I exited college, that was when I stopped 
doing stuff like that because there's getting the job done and then there's getting the job done where you don't weirdly have heartburn from drinking beer. <laughs> um, and that's that's what I was opting for after that. Nice. Well, you get to a point where you've worked too hard in life to wear a suit and to drink bad beer. Yeah. 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 But my, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm criticizing IPAs. Obviously I'll drink IPAs. They do, they do fit above the like line of acceptability, which is basically anything besides Milwaukee's best light. Well, you, you strike me as a Porter stout guy anyway. You have the beard that just yeah. screams that you're a yeah. Porter guy. Right, right. No, a beer that's a meal replacement. It is true. <laughs> yeah, I just know Brandon was a big fan and, and David was not. So I thought we should bring you two together and have it discuss it. So I'm glad we got to do that on the POC. That's that's good radio or, or podcasting. We, right should, there. we should have a beer drink off. Somebody wants to sponsor that and just like have a stream beers and write reviews and not even really write reviews, just to podcast about it. Yeah, no, we'll just get drunk and talk. Yeah, that would be good. We could do a, we could do that on video even. That would be fun. What was your favorite chunk play in the Kennedy Palomalu play calling days? (laughs) (laughs) No, because it can't get that aggressively drunk. Like we can't make it an angry drunken conversation. That's good point. We might end up fighting. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Well, awesome stuff. Thanks again, Brandon. Uh, I'm Ryan Abraham. That's David Woods for Brandon Huffman. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast of champions and we will talk to you next time okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.